Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Heart Success Podcast. Today's episode is part of our Cardiac Amyloidosis series and we will be talking about AL amyloidosis which is right chain amyloidosis. This is a disease where there has been a huge impetus, especially in recent times, to increase awareness of disease to prevent a delay in diagnosis and treatment. Left untreated, we know that light chain amyloidosis is uniformly fatal and time is of the essence. To talk about light chain amyloidosis, we have a special expert on this who you can hear at most meetings really giving talks on light chain amyloidosis. Our speaker today is Dr. Ronald Vitalis. Dr. Vitalis is an associate professor of medicine and the co-director of the Stanford Amyloid Center in California. He completed his internal medicine residency and general cardiology fellowship at Stanford University School of Medicine, following which he stayed on as a faculty member at the institution. Other than amyloidosis, his clinical focus also includes sarcoidosis and cardio-oncology. He serves as, a, as the program director for the Stanford Internal Medicine Residency Program, directly supervising the training of more than 120 physicians every year. Dr. Vitalis has published extensively in his areas of expertise and has won many awards for his excellence in both patient care and education. We are excited to have him on this episode today. Before you go and listen to the episode, I'm just going to give you a heads up. We recorded this interview in person at the AHA 2019 meeting. So it sounds a little different compared to other episodes where I've recorded in more quiet surroundings. It was pretty loud at AHA and we did find a quiet corner and we did use mics. But just a heads up, Doug, there is some background noise throughout the interview. However, I think the voice quality is pretty good and you can hear us both very clearly through our mics. So I apologize for the background noise and I tried my best to get rid of it as much as I could. Welcome to Heart Success, Dr. Vitalis. Uh, do you mind if I address you on a first name basis? <laughs> Please, Ron is right. <laughs> so uh, thank you for doing this episode on AL amyloidosis. There's certainly a lot of research going on in this field and, and it sort of made a comeback with uh, all the advances in chemotherapy and, and I'm sure stem cell transplant therapies that have, that have come up in the last few years. Before we go into the medical aspect of things, could you tell us a little bit about you so our listeners will get to know you better? Sure, thanks, and uh, thanks for inviting me to be here. Uh, so I'm a cardiologist and heart failure specialist. I uh, wear a number of different hats. Uh, my uh, main clinical and research areas of focus are amyloidosis, cardio-oncology or cardiovascular complications of cancer therapy and sarcoidosis. Uh, broadly speaking, though, all housed under heart failure. I'm also the internal medicine residency program director at Stanford, uh, and as part of the amyloid efforts, I co-direct our, uh, the Stanford Amyloid Center. And when you're not working, uh, what is your weekend like? <laughs> What do you enjoy out of, outside of work? Well, my weekend looks like a lot of soccer and basketball <laughs> games for my three daughters. Uh, so, uh, uh, so that a lot of that, uh, yeah. uh, 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 which is great. Uh, they're at fun ages. 
you know, we, we talk about amyloidosis, and, and for most cardiac providers, I think we mainly talk about TTR amyloidosis, which is Schwann's thyroid amyloidosis, and AL amyloidosis, which is right chain amyloidosis. Is, is there anything else that providers should know about the different categories of amyloidosis, or is it fair to say that these are the big two that most of us should be aware of and think about? It's definitely fair to say that these are the big two. Within transthyretin, there are two types of the so-called variant or hereditary form and the wild-type form. But uh, So if you want to count that as three, you can count that as three. But broadly speaking, it's really uh, transthyretin and uh, light chain or APPR and AL amyloid. There are certainly other types that if you're going to be an amyloid specialist, it's important to know about. But I think for the general community, it's uh, perfectly appropriate to focus on these two. And, you know, I know we're going to go into some of these details. But why has it become so important to discuss AL amyloidosis today, including for all cardiologists and providers out there? Why should they know about AL amyloidosis? Sure. So uh, several reasons. Number one is that I think most people, when they learned about it in medical school, uh, learned about it as this terrible, incurable disease. And and a lot of providers take a bit of a nihilistic attitude of, well, why even go down the road of making the diagnosis uh, because it's just a death sentence anyway. And there used to be some degree of truth to that. Uh, Thankfully, as I'm sure we'll get into, uh, that's really no longer the case. Prognosis has markedly gotten better. Uh, The other reason uh, is that AL amyloidosis uh, is uh, close to an emergency. It is certainly an urgency uh, to make the diagnosis because as opposed to transthyretin, which progresses at a relatively slow rate, and though you don't want to miss the diagnosis, for years, if it uh, takes a period of months to make the diagnosis, even if not ideal, it's certainly not the end of the world. For an AL patient, it really can be. It can make a massive difference uh, in their ability to uh, live with the disease or live uh, without uh, terrible complications. So it's important to know about um, uh, the basics of uh, how to diagnose or uh, when to refer. Okay. And considering our talk today is going to revolve around AL amyloidosis, because we'll be doing TTR in a separate episode. Maybe I thought we could start with some of the basics and the pathophysiology of this disease. How does the protein deposition in AL amyloid differ from, let's say, the other types of amyloidosis? Sure. So uh, this is something that I think caused a lot of confusion, and everybody knows, well, there's some relation with myeloma and MGUS, and what is it? So let me do my best to demystify it. So uh, antibodies, of course, come uh, from plasma cells, which uh, reside uh, almost completely in the bone marrow. Uh, The plasma cells make millions of different antibodies, which, of course, are all composed of heavy chains and light chains. Uh, The heavy chains uh, determine the antibody type, meaning is it IgG, IgM, IgA, etc., and they contribute to the antibody specificity, and the light chains uh, contribute to the antibody specificity as well. The important thing to recognize about the light chains is they uh, fall broadly into two types called kappa and lambda. Uh, And uh, so even though there's, again, millions of different possibilities of kappa or lambda that you can have, that you can separate them into those two types. So uh, now imagine a plasma cell becomes clonal. It's uh, like any essentially malignancy uh, develops a clonal population. Well, they will then do uh, a couple of things. One is they will divide in an unregulated fashion and take over some amount of the bone marrow. Number two is that they will produce whatever antibody they were destined to produce most of the time. Uh, So maybe it'll be an IgG-lambda antibody, for example. And three is that they will typically produce an excess of whatever light chain goes along with that antibody. So in this example, lambda light chain. 
Uh, at that point, there are three possibilities. Number one is that the plasma cells take over only a little bit of the bone marrow. They don't cause any problems like fractures and hypercalcemia. And then the light chains uh, and antibodies, for that matter, can come out harmlessly in the urine. Uh, and we call that monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, which is uh, I imagine many people know, is uh, increasingly common as people get older, and most of the time doesn't turn into anything pathologic. Second possibility is that the plasma cell is more malignant, the plasma cell itself. So it, it takes over more of the marrow, it, uh, it can cause the anemia, the fracture, and the hypercalcemia. And that, of course, is what we call myeloma, or, or multiple myeloma, same thing. The third possibility is that regardless of how malignant that plasma cell is, is that the light chain it makes just happens to be of the wrong conformation, a conformation that is prone for it to misfold, stack, uh, and, and uh, uh, deposit as amyloid fibrils. So you have essentially these light chains circulating in the bloodstream that are prone to misfold and can then deposit extracellularly. Now, because the blood goes everywhere, uh, it can theoretically deposit anywhere in any organ. Uh, the sole exception of the brain because of the blood-brain barrier. For reasons that we partially but don't completely understand, in any individual with the disease, it's more prone to deposit in some areas than others. So one person may have it mainly in the heart and the kidneys, and another may have it mainly in the tongue, and another person may have soft tissue and liver, etc. Um, each individual with the disease uh, tends to keep that pattern of involvement, meaning wherever it's prone to go, it tends to keep being prone uh, to go. What drives the prognosis of the disease, however, uh, is uh, very much largely the degree of cardiac involvement, um, and uh, it, can it can progress slowly in some cases or very, very quickly in others, and unless you shut off that production of light chain, uh, the disease will progress and the patient will die. Now, that's, that's a great point. And, and the other thing we commonly associated with amyloidosis is uh, peripheral neuropathy and autonomic dysfunction. Is it just as commonly seen among patients with AL? Well, I would say, so it, for transthyretin, it's not commonly seen in the most common type of transthyretin, which is wild type. Patients will often have carpal tunnel or spinal stenosis, but it's a little different than actual neuropathy, per se. Uh, for the hereditary or variant forms, it's quite common, uh, particularly with some of the variants. In AL, uh, neuropathy is reasonably common, not as common as with the uh, variant transthyretin cases. Um, I would say the most common other vital organ to be involved is the kidneys, and uh, that will typically lead to uh, proteinuria, which can be massive, and of course progressive GFR reduction with time. And that's a great point. You know, I think so. Going to what clinical scenario should we start thinking about amyloidosis? Clearly, heart failure is one. A jump, accompanying kidney dysfunction seems to be also helping you in this clinical diagnosis. Are there any clinical scenarios when you should really consider a diagnosis for amyloidosis? Yeah, there's a number of potential clues. So one you just highlighted. So it's the combination of uh, cardiac uh, dysfunction along with some other organ dysfunction. So if we kind of focus in on what the common ones are. So kidneys we just talked about, and I want to just emphasize, it's really the proteinuria or albuminuria that you should be looking for uh, because it's almost always seen. Is, uh, kidney involvement again, it could be massive. So, you have somebody who presents with new nephrotic syndrome and heart failure, boom, you have to think about AL amyloid as a potential cause. Uh, for GI involvement, uh, it's, uh, it can often be dysphagia, so trouble swallowing, um, con uh, bad constipation, uh, uh, unexplained weight loss. For uh, 
classically people, uh, I think a lot of people know about the tongue involvement, and it is reasonably common, not in everybody. But if somebody notes that, certainly if they note themselves, hey, me or I or my dentist noticed my tongue was getting bigger, I'm having trouble swallowing. When you look on exam, if you can see what's called scalloping, which is the indentations uh, of the teeth on the uh, tongue, that because the tongue is enlarged, um, uh, that's another uh, another sign. Things like carpal tunnel syndrome, really common in transdiuretin, certainly happen in AL as well, but probably not quite uh, as as uh, as reliable. The other clues from a cardiac standpoint are number one, uh, uh, the electrical voltages on EKG. Uh, they are not always, frankly, low, but they're usually low in AL, much less reliably so with uh, transdiuretin. Uh, but even if they're not frankly low, if they're low compared to what you'd expect to see based on what you think is hypertrophy on echo, uh, that should be a hint. Uh, and then chronically elevated cardiac biomarkers, in particular chronic troponin elevations, which otherwise are strange and never believe they've been cast, and maybe they even got a stent, but they actually still have uh, troponin elevations. Why is that? Intolerance of usual cardiac meds, neurohormonal antagonists, exceedingly common in AL because of restricted myopathy and often in some degree of autonomic dysfunction. Yeah, that should be a sign. So all of these can be clinical clues. So in addition to the EKG and the echocardiogram, are there other tests that you usually get in these patients when you're evaluating for AL amyloidosis? Well, the big, uh, the biggest thing is the laboratory evaluation and looking for a monoclonal protein. So I'll get to that in a second. In terms of other imaging, uh, so uh, cardiac MRI gets talked about a lot. I would say my own belief is that its utility in this disease is not once you've already suspected the diagnosis, uh, because if you have reason to be suspicious, uh, the MRI should not dissuade you en- uh, enough if negative not to pursue, and uh, if positive, it's still not going to save a step to moving on to the next thing, and it's just a time wait. Where MRI can be helpful is, and certainly leads to a lot of patients getting diagnosed, is cardiologist sees patient X who has, let's just call it, strange cardiomyopathy, not quite behaving normally. And uh, often that's when cardiologists will order an MRI. And there is a reasonably distinctive pattern for uh, amyloid on on, uh, cardiac MRI. And then they get back a read and it says, consistent with amyloidosis, and that gets the suspicion going. So um, it's a really good test for getting people to think about it when they haven't already. Once you're actually considering it, it's probably a, just a, an extra step, an extra time that is, uh, is, is not needed. Um, technetium pyrophosphate scan, which I'm sure you'll talk a lot about uh, in your yeah. TPR episode, is uh, can be a very useful test for TPR uh, amyloid, not at all useful for AL amyloid. And the only thing I want to say about it, because this is not a TPR focus, is that remember when you're using it to evaluate for transthyretin amyloid, you can only use it if you have ruled out AL amyloid by checking the laboratory test I'm going to get into in a moment, um, it, because uh, we know that roughly 22% of patients with AL amyloid will have positive technetium pyrophosphate scan. So if there is a positive monoclonal protein, you simply cannot use it to diagnose CTR because you may be falsely diagnosing an AL patient with CTR, which is the biggest crime you can make in this disease, uh, and this is the chance to treat them. So from a laboratory standpoint, uh, there uh, are three tests to get uh, to evaluate for monoclonal protein. Uh, the first two are similar, serum and urine protein electrophoresis with immunofixation, sometimes called SPI or UPI. I want to be clear that you need the immunofixation part, not just uh, the old SPAP and UPAP, which is a simple electrophoresis. 
What you're doing here is you are looking for a specific spike of a monoclonal protein, usually a whole immunoglobulin for the S-pi and a light chain for the U-pi. That's why you get both, because light chains are, are concentrated in the urine. The third test, and the most important of them, is the serum-free light chain uh, assay. Now, this, I want to be clear, because cardiologists may not be familiar with these that much, these are very standard tests available in every uh, clinical lab. What the serum-free light chain test is, is a little bit different from the S-pi and U-pi in that you're not directly looking at clonality. Instead, what you're doing is counting up all the circulating free kappa light chains in the serum and all the circulating free lambda light chains in the serum. In a normal person, the ratio is roughly one-to-one. Now, depending on uh, degrees of kidney dysfunction, uh, you can end up with more of a kappa predominance with, a, with completely normal kidneys. You often have a little bit of a lambda predominance. But if you're off by more than about two to one in either direction, it strongly suggests that there is clonal production of either kappa or lambda light chain. And if you're more than three or four to one, it pretty much confirms there's clonal production uh, of a light chain. Um, so you need those three tests, and only if those three tests are all normal can you feel good about uh, excluding AL amyloid without moving on to another step. Yep. This is this is a great uh, discussion on different tests you got. So let's say you have a patient who suspected amyloidosis. You had the echo, you did the MRI and the light chain assays at the same time. Everything consistent with a likely diagnosis of AL amyloidosis. So the next question I had for you was how soon do you get the hematologist involved and what is the next test you would recommend for these patients and how important is time in this in this uh, sort of algorithm? Sure, thank you. So it is, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, it's it, it, somewhere between an urgency and an emergency. These patients, very different from the transthyretin patients, they can progress very quickly, sometimes in front of your eyes. Um, so it is really an urgency to get these patients started on light chain suppressive therapy, which we can talk about uh, uh, how that's changed, uh, as soon as possible. Now, um, how, to, how to confirm a diagnosis? Because the, the scenario you just laid out has not by any means confirmed a diagnosis of AL amyloid. Um, because what the patient can also have is monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance plus transthyretin amyloid. So again, having an abnormal monoclonal protein just means you have a plasma cell that's making light chains and or antibodies. It, um, and if you did the other testing, like the cardiac MRI, for example, the strongest suggestion of, uh, of amyloid, they probably have amyloid, but it could easily still be transthyretin amyloid with an unrelated MGUS. And this absolutely happens as you get into older patient populations. Now, reasonable people can be reasonable. And if you have a 40-year-old with nephrotic syndrome and clear cardiac amyloid and, and positive light chain, that's going to be AL. And while we typically will still, con uh, still uh, get confirmatory testing, we will sometimes start them on chemotherapy even before the tissue diagnosis. But in general, you're going to want to get the tissue diagnosis. And unlike TTR, where you can do a PYP scan, you have to get a tissue diagnosis. Excuse me, you have to biopsy in order to confirm a diagnosis of AL. So where to biopsy? Right. Uh, you uh, have multiple options. So a lot of places uh, like to pursue a abdominal fat pad biopsy. The advantage of it is that it is, of course, uh, the least invasive. And uh, uh, for AL, as opposed to transthyretin, has a reasonably uh, high sensitivity. But even in the best of hands, uh, the sensitivity won't be more than 80 to 85%. And in the real world, I would say uh, the sensitivity that even for AL is quite a bit less than that. If you do an abdominal pad biopsy and it comes back negative, 
you have to move on to another test. It's only useful if it's positive. And remember, it's not just a question of positive. It's positive and you need the subtype for it. Um, and uh, uh, the, the, sometimes the biopsy will be positive, but there will be so scant, such scant amyloid deposits that you cannot uh, subtype it. Therefore, my general preference, and if, you, if those who are listening are at a center that has a good access to uh, endomyocardial biopsies, if your suspicion of, uh, is of cardiac amyloid, they have a uh, monoclonal protein, we will typically move straight to endomyocardial biopsy because unlike other infiltrative diseases like sarcoid, the yield if you biopsy the clinically involved organ is essentially 100% for both sensitivity and specificity, and there will always be enough uh, there to subtype. And because of the urgency of getting these patients started on treatment, you don't want to waste the time, get the abdominal fat pad biopsy, find scant deposits, sends it off, find out there's not enough uh, there to confirm, etc. So we usually go for endomyocardial biopsy first, but it's reasonable to go to a fat type biopsy first. Now, these patients are also going to need a bone marrow biopsy. And you say, well, why don't I just do that? Well, the bone marrow biopsy confirms the plasma cell dyscrasia, and, and probably beyond the scope of this, but it rules out that it could be uh, uh, a different form like uh, lymphoma that's, uh, that's producing it, which will slightly affect the chemotherapy. Sometimes, uh, but still the minority of time, you'll find the actual amyloid deposits in the bone marrow. And if you did that, sure, you could subtype it from there. But again, most of the time, you won't. So, uh, so most of the time, you're going to need to do a biopsy. To answer the question, how early get a hematologist involved? You should be getting them involved. Uh, uh, well, two things. Number one, you should be getting them involved immediately once you're suspicious of it. But the truth is, no, you shouldn't. Because what you should actually be doing is referring those patients to a, a large center that specializes in this disease. And I want to be clear that I think that we need to really work to democratize transthyretin diagnosis and therapy because there's so many of those patients out there and the therapy, at least right now, is pretty straightforward that my hope is that in a reasonably short amount of time, all those patients aren't going to be getting referred to big specialty centers, but it's going to be commonplace enough to do the basic evaluation, start them on therapy in the community. AL is much more complicated. Um, uh, there's many, many more ways for it to go wrong. And so if, if at all possible, getting these patients to a center that specializes in the disease uh, is, uh, is critical. No, absolutely. That's a great point because, like you mentioned, I think it's become relatively commonplace at most centers to use PYP scanning and cardiac MRI and then possibly not even needing biopsies to diagnose TTR amyloidosis once you've ruled out AL. So certainly the AL patients, the usually sicker lot, need to need to go to a larger center with more expertise and, and maybe better structures in place to act on these patients quickly. And, and I'll, I'll say, even, even from a hematology standpoint, um, if you go to a you know, sort of typical community uh, hematologist oncologist, so the community is usually typically more an oncologist than hematologist, they may have taken care of exceedingly few AL patients. And the treatment and the urgency between AL amyloid and myeloma, which is much more common, very, very different, particularly right. from the urgent course. So before we go into the treatments, uh, what other cardiac manifestations are common among these patients, in addition to the usual heart failure? So arrhythmias are common as well, um, both uh, bradyarrhythmias, which are typically from heart block, as well as uh, atrial and ventricular tachyarrhythmias. Um, this is true, by the way, for transthyretin as well. In fact, the heart block is even more common in transthyretin uh, than AL, but can certainly uh, occur in both, uh, uh, both types. Um, the uh, treatments of the arrhythmias are 
reasonably straightforward. Uh, if somebody has heart block or symptomatic bradycardia, they, like anybody, uh, has an indication for a pacemaker. Uh, atrial arrhythmias, the things to know are that, number one, they, these patients are at exceedingly high risk of thrombus formation, uh, so they should all be anticoagulated. And in fact, there's a reasonably good data to suggest that the failure of anticoagulation rate is high enough that if you're going to cardioverse, uh, that they all get CEEs, even if they've been on therapeutic anticoagulation for what would normally be a long enough time to be confident there's not thrombus there. It's uh, Some patients uh, tolerate the atrial arrhythmias poorly, and it's certainly reasonable to try a rhythm control strategy in some of the, such cases, uh, although uh, often it ends up uh, not being successful. Um, from a ventricular arrhythmia standpoint, this is an area, I would say, of still some controversy. Um, our own practice at Stanford uh, is to be reasonably aggressive with our defibrillator use in these patients, the AL patients are at much, much higher rate of sudden death from uh, ventricular arrhythmias than the transthyretin patients. Um, and uh, it used to be thought that it doesn't make sense to place defibrillators in these patients, both because their prognosis was so poor and a belief that defibrillators didn't work, meaning that the patients would get shocked for their ventricular tachyarrhythmias, but either they wouldn't come out of it or they'd come out of the rhythm, but they'd be left in PEA. Uh, I would say uh, we and others uh, have published data challenging that, and I think it's simply because that it used to be that defibrillators would be placed in end-to-end stage patients, which are the wrong ones to place it in, and or that patients would have rapidly uh, progressive disease because the light chains couldn't be controlled. So uh, I can say unequivocally that most patients who get defibrillators, if they have a ventricular arrhythmia that requires therapy, will uh, get appropriate therapy and will be resuscitated from it, not 100%, but right. a large majority. So if people have a um, reasonable prognosis, let's say at least a year, but these days most have much more than that, um, and they either have a, a highly suspicious history or uh, a uh, at all significant burden of VT on ambulatory telemetry, we usually offer them defibrillator. Are you offering them the, the ICD before you even start treating uh, the underlying AL? No, I would certainly not do that because uh, the biggest message about treatment of AL amyloid is that it's light chains, light chains, light chains, and so you never want to delay that therapy. Um, so then it comes into timing of when you place a defibrillator, do you really want to do it with somebody on intensive chemotherapy right. and who's on a lot of steroids? And that's a bit of a judgment call. Uh, we certainly use light best for the first few months when people are on the more intensive therapy and then transitioning to defibrillator. So, uh, but I would never delay starting therapy for that's a replacement. That's a great point on use of life vest, especially in this situation. So, prognostication. How do you prognosticate patients with AL amyloid if you were looking at some markers for these patients? Yeah, so there's been a couple staging systems proposed. The uh, uh, most commonly used one uh, employs three variables. The NC-proBNP, or you could use BNP if, if that's your institutional preference, uh, the troponin, uh, and the difference in the free light chains at the time of diagnosis. The original staging system only had the cardiac biomarkers, and it, it's worth taking a step back and thinking about how remarkable that is. This is a hematologic malignancy where the entire staging was based on two cardiac biomarkers, and that tells you what drives the prognosis of this disease. Now, again, the moderate, the most Modern state system incorporates this third variable as well. So uh, there are cutoffs that are that are published. Of course, anytime you're dichotomizing continuous variables, it's not perfect, but 
There's cutoffs for each of these levels, uh, and depending on if you're above or below, if you're above the level, then you advance the stage. So if all three are below the levels, you're stage one. If all three are above the levels, you're stage four, mm -hmm. uh, and so on and so forth in between for stage two and three. Yeah. And, and going into treatment, like you said, it's a hematological diagnosis. What are the, broadly, I guess, uh, speaking, what are the big treatment therapies available for AL that have really changed the field today? Sure. Um, I, I cannot emphasize enough how much this has advanced and how different this is from what uh, many people would have uh, learned about in medical school before. So, uh, and this is thanks to improved therapies that were all really developed for myeloma, but of course they work for any plasma cell dysplasia, so work here as well. So, um, first off, I want to be clear that from a light chain suppressive therapy, your goal is to suppress the light chains as much as possible with the least toxicity possible. That's your goal. Um, your goal is not to get a patient to stem cell transplant, and I'm sure we'll get into that more. A stem cell transplant is one tool in an armamentarium. There is nothing special about it. It is simply one other way of trying to get light chains down. The question should always be, how can we effectively get the light chains down with the least toxicity possible? When, uh, the, when chemotherapy first started, it was looking at alkylators like melphalan uh, and steroids. They worked. They got it down some, uh, but they uh, weren't super effective. And if they didn't work, tough luck. There was really nothing, no other option. You could do uh, auto stem cell transplant, which is just basically giving a higher dose alkylator and then rescuing with your own bone marrow, uh, not getting any graft versus tumor effect of your own bone marrow that's coming. Then, really starting uh, about 12 years ago, uh, there have been a host of newer therapies that have been approved. In broad categories, you have the proteasome inhibitors, so things like bortezomib, uh, those later generations, things like carfilzomib, but bortezomib is the, the uh, most, most common one. The so-called imids, these are uh, thalidomide analogs, of which uh, uh, lenalidomide was the uh, first and still probably most common, but again, there's later generation forms. And the, the third I'd highlight, there's others I'm leaving out here, but the third I'd highlight because it has uh, been so remarkable is an agent called daratumumab. This is a monoclonal antibody to CD38, which is uh, highly expressed on active plasma cells. It's approved for myeloma, and it has been absolutely remarkable uh, in terms of its ability to, uh, uh, to control the malignancy control uh, light chain production. Uh, this is an immunotherapy, not a chemotherapy. Uh, so because of that, save for some fusion reactions, which are mild in most patients, it tends to be very well tolerated. And uh, it has been remarkable. We published uh, one of the first series on this, uh, uh, but there's a randomized trial that we'll report out before too long about its use in upfront patients. But I can tell you that for many patients who didn't seem to have been good control before, they get on this agent, and in many cases, they get uh, remarkable control very quickly. So the, mm -hmm. what I'd say broadly, and, and if we're going to get into stem cell transplant more, I'll wait. Yeah, we are. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, but what I'd say broadly is that, because the average cardiologist does not be, in fact, no cardiologist can prescribe this because they don't have uh, privileges yes. to. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I don't want to get too far into the weeds of it. I would right. send the message that, these days, it is the rare patients where we can't control the light chains. Most of the time, we can't. It happens, but the, the large majority of the time, we can control the light chains. So it's a matter of making the diagnosis quickly, hopefully having the disease not have caused too much uh, uh, damage uh, by the time you start them on therapy. 
and then we get the light change. Yeah, and then going to stem cell therapy. Now you mentioned how chemotherapy has changed remarkably because we have evidence for light chain suppressive therapy when compared to autologous stem cell transplant. There really seems to be some conflicting evidence where early reports showed superiority, uh, maybe retrospective studies showing superiority for stem cell transplant over chemotherapy. And then the only randomized control trial, which was back in 2007, so it sounds like it predates current chemotherapy, showed maybe equivalence between these therapies. So oh, where no. do we stand today? Uh, did not show equivalence. Did not. No. In fact, well, well yeah, let me, let me go on to this. This is a crucial point. Yes. Um, so I think to the extent that people know about AL amyloid, the average cardiologist, and frankly, the average hematologist oncologist, uh, they know it as a bad disease, and they know it as uh, you need to get your patient to stem cell transplant if you can. And I would say I, I dispute, uh, I, I definitely dispute the latter. Um, so here's the data. So as you, uh, as you highlighted, there's one randomized trial. Now, before that randomized trial, there had been a series of observational studies that had said patients who get stem cell transplants uh, do better than patients who don't. But there were obvious, enormous confounders with that, which is that there's a reason why the patients who got stem cell transplants got stem cell transplants, and there's a reason why those who didn't didn't. Because right. the ones who didn't uh, were, clearly, uh, were clearly much sicker, uh, or poor candidates for other reasons. They were older, they had uh, uh, challenging social uh, circumstances, whatever it may be. There's a reason why they didn't. Um, so it's really hard to look at that data as, uh, as any more than mildly thought-provoking, but not go beyond that. Now, I, I want to be clear, because again, I know the audience for this is cardiologists, and, and, and the familiarity with the details about stem cell transplant probably is, is fairly low. So I want to be clear. Uh, that I, refer- I briefly referenced it before. When we're talking about stem cell transplant, there's two main types, autotransplant or autologous and uh, an aller- uh, uh, allogeneic transplant. The difference is in the auto, you're getting your own bone marrow cells back. In uh, allogeneic, you're getting someone else's uh, bone marrow cells back. The advantage of an allogeneic is that you have what's called the graft versus tumor effect because the uh, it's somebody else's bone marrow that recognizes that it is not self, and it attacks that. The problem is you can also get graft-versus-host disease where it attacks the, the, the individual. Allogeneic transplants are overall more toxic than autologous transplants, uh, and for that reason, they are not used, period. They are not used for AL uh, amyloidosis. So the only transplants we're talking about are autologous stem cell transplants, which, again, is simply because there's a lot of sort of mysticism around stem cell transplants. Autologous stem cell transplant is no more and no less than uh, giving a higher dose of one kind of chemotherapy, specifically an alkylator, typically high-dose melphalan, uh, than you could otherwise give because you'd wipe out your bone marrow. So there's not necessarily a reason to automatically imagine that it would be better than other forms of chemotherapy that I actually might be better. Okay, now let's go to the randomized trial. One randomized trial, as referenced, it was published in 2007, it was done in France. It was 100 patients, exactly, with AL amyloidosis, uh, many but not all of whom had uh, significant cardiac involvement, and they were randomized to the state-of-the-art chemotherapy at the time, which was just standard-dose melphalan and dexamethasone, or stem cell transplant, which is basically just higher dose of melphalan than dexamethasone. And everybody was expecting that the stem cell transplant would win out, and lo and behold, what happens... But the the, the uh, group who got the standard chemo had did statistically significantly better from that hard endpoint that we like to call survival. Statistically significantly better survival 
And uh, by the way, when they broke it out into the subgroups of those with and without significant cardiac involvement, it was true. Uh, it, it trended in favor of, of the uh, standard chemo in both arms. So a lot of critics of the trial say, well, it was done in France at a bunch of small centers, and they didn't really know what they were doing. They, their transplant-related mortality was too high. But the authors had built in a pre-specified six-month landmark analysis, meaning let's only consider for that analysis people who got through their therapy and lived at least six months. So now we are taking out any issues of the toxicity of the treatment because it should have been long over by that point. Right. And yet, even there, the survival trended in favor of standard chemo rather than stem cell transplant. Now, consider that that was at a time where, again, the only chemo available was basically melphalan-dexmethasone. Today, we wouldn't dream of giving somebody melphalan-dexmethasone because we have so many better treatment options like I was highlighting before. So you'd have every reason to believe that if you were to repeat this trial now, that the results would be massively better today than they were then uh, because with this, with this standard chemo arm. So you look at all of that, and, and to me... It's hard for me to look at that data and come to any conclusion other than that stem cell transplant should be rarely used for this disease. Really, I would say only as one option of people are failing the other option, particularly when you consider the fact that stem cell transplant, at the very least, is awfully unpleasant. Right. Uh, um, and, and so my own belief is that it's one option, it's one uh, tool in the Swiss Army knife, if you will, or that you can use, but your goal is not to get somebody to stem cell transplant. Your goal is to control the light chain. Now, that's a fantastic and comprehensive review of the different treatment options that we're commonly not involved in. So that brings us to the current guideline-directed medical therapies from the cardiac perspective uh, that we can use in patients with cardiac amyloidosis. So is there any role for neurohormonal blockade agents in patients with AL amyloidosis? Uh, the short answer is no. Um, for for transthyretin patients who are hypertensive and have low EFs, maybe some cautious RAS blockade use makes sense, but AL patients tend to tolerate them exceedingly poorly. Again, they have very restrictive ventricles. They, from the beta blocker standpoint, will often need a higher heart rate. They're certainly prone to to heart block. Uh, The only time I'd ever use a beta blocker in these patients is if needed for rate control of atrial arrhythmias. Again, RAS blockade, in fact, not only uh, would I not recommend starting them, but often one of the clues to the diagnosis is that a cardiologist tries to start a patient on a, a RAS inhibitor and the person passes out or feels absolutely terrible. So no, there really is not. And any role for amyloid stabilizers? So uh, if you're talking about the TTR agents? Uh, Those and maybe doxycycline, diflunosol. Okay, okay. okay. So, so diflunosol, tefamidus, EG10, which is in development, are all specifically stabilizers for transthyretin. Uh, they have no role in AL amyloidosis, yep. period. There's a number of other agents uh, that are, that, that things like doxycycline, ursodiol, uh, green tea extract, which have various low-level evidence uh, supporting, I would say, uh, uh, personally, I, unless it's as part of a clinical trial, I don't necessarily recommend any of them. Certainly, if a patient wants to take green tea extract, I have no problem with it. Um, If patients come on doxycycline and want to stay on it, I I certainly don't feel strongly about starting it. But there's so many things we can do that have uh, clear evidence bases behind it. That's where I focus. And uh, the other thing you just mentioned was the arrhythmias in patients with amyloidosis. 
beta blockers may be used for rate control therapies. Do you use certain agents for rhythm control strategies? Is there a role for digoxin in any of these patients? Yeah, so on the digoxin point, it, it certainly, the stuff of lore, that uh, you should never use digoxin in an amyloid patient because the digoxin can bind to the amyloid fibrils and cause uh, dig toxicity even though the systemic uh, circulating levels are normal. And there probably is something to that. I'd say uh, for, for transthyretin amyloid, uh, we'll occasionally use it for rate control. Again, I would not use it for its uh, heart failure uh, potential benefit, but for rate control, occasionally we'll use it because, particularly because the and beta blockers uh, uh, or amiodarone, as we can get to, are, are often not that well tolerated. You've got to do so carefully. I'd be even a little more worried about using it in AL. I'd never say never, but I wouldn't right. want to be part of my normal armamentarium. In terms of rhythm control, I think most of us, when we use something for rhythm control here, use amiodarone, but it can certainly, I mean, every cardiologist knows that uh, uh, patients who have heart failure, uh, particularly brittle heart failure, uh, don't necessarily always tolerate amiodarone well, and that's uh, even more so uh, in these patients. So, you know, again, I would think twice before pursuing a rhythm control strategy in these uh, in, in these patients. Uh, uh, you want the atrial arrhythmias clearly be causing a problem and yeah. be able to show that you can convert them and hopefully keep them out for some time with, with cardioversion. So have, have when we use it, most commonly amiodarone, have I ever had a patient on uh, sodalol or defetilite ever? Yes, but it wouldn't be my favorite to. And, you know, the other thing that I think it's important to talk about is role for cardiac transplantation in patients with AL amyloid. So you work at a center that does is one of the few centers in the country that actually does cardiac transplantation for AL amyloid. So maybe you could share some of your insight and expertise on this topic. Absolutely. So for transplant for amyloid overall, uh, it's increasingly uh, being done. Uh, in fact, uh, it has a, it, it automatically uh, gets people to higher category of status four on the list with the with the current transplant rules. Um, for transthyretin, which I know is not the main thing we're talking about, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, uh, for the wild type, it's pretty much just are they a candidate by all the usual uh, the, all the usual things. The what tends to get in the way there is just age uh, because of who the patient population is. Uh, for um, for the hereditary forms, uh, there's some other considerations, but I'm not going to go into that too mm-hmm. much because I know our focus is AL. For, for AL patients, it's a lot trickier because now we're talking about transplanting somebody, A, in a sense, with an act of malignancy, right. and, and B, uh, with typically some degree of other organ involvement because, as we were talking about earlier, uh, these light chains are circulated in the bloodstream. Uh, they theoretically can go anywhere, although they go to certain places more than others in each patient. And though it happens, it's rare to have a patient where really you can't find any clinical evidence in any other organ. So now you have to say, well, how much is too much? How much? Uh, and so uh, we, we and other centers like Mayo Clinic who do this are very, very careful about ruling out significant clinical involvement of other organs. So if they have uh, large amounts of proteinuria, for example where they have symptomatic GI involvement, for example, or they have uh, bad neurologic involvement, for example, we simply will not transplant them. The, 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 for the outcomes for transplanting patients with AL amyloidosis used to be terrible because that's exactly who got transplanted. Um, however, if you are careful with picking that patient who doesn't have a lot of other clinical organ involvement, 
and crucially that you have shown that you can control the light chains uh, and who otherwise needs and qualifies for a heart transplant, then it can be a, a wonderful, truly life-saving option for patients who might otherwise have a terrible prognosis if they're at the point that, they're, again, their heart failure is bad enough that they, uh, they would need one. We've actually done tremendously well at Stanford. Uh, in fact, uh, so well that our AL patients have done even better than our transthyretin patients. And, and, and uh, as, as, as a whole, our, our amyloid patients that we've done uh, have, uh, have, if anything, done a little better than, than our yeah. average transplant patients. But that's, again, because of being very careful. So you want to make sure you can control the light chains. You want to make sure that they don't have other significant uh, organ involvement. And, uh, and of course, they need to be ill enough, but not so ill uh, like anybody who's getting a transplant. I will say that, uh, that uh, other groups routinely do stem cell transplant after heart transplant. We do not. Again, the goal is not to tr- do a stem cell transplant. The goal right. is to control the light chain. So we'll still do stem cell transplant in specific cases where we aren't happy enough with the light chain control that we've achieved, and it's one other thing we can do. But uh, the large majority of uh, times, no, we would not do a stem cell transplant. And, and this has been part of my experience in the Northeast, at least, is a uh, status four exception that we have for transplantation doesn't really give you a high enough listing status for most patients. could be certainly different in California. Uh, where you practice, but is there a role for using bridging strategies like LVAD or TAH in some of these patients versus are you using exception letters in certain cases to try to get them a higher status? Because higher status for our listeners, really status one, two are the more emergent statuses which get a better better chance of getting transplanted in a timely manner. Yeah, good question. And of course, uh, there's no perfect system for, for prioritization, and sadly, uh, it ends up uh, to some degree being an arms race between different centers uh, to, to one-up one another of, of, uh, of statuses, and it does start meaning that the lower statuses, even quote-unquote higher lower statuses right. like status four, uh, it, it may not mean much, uh, certainly doesn't mean, mean anything with, uh, say, a blood type O individual. Sure. Um, so to answer your question, we're much, much, much more likely to try to either push for an exception or if the patient meets criteria, have them on a balloon pump and do status two and get a heart that way than to put uh, patients through uh, mechanical circulatory support. In terms of standard LVAD, uh, in general, these patients do terribly with standard LVADs for multiple reasons. Uh, number one, small restrictive ventricles do not tend to do well with LVADs. Number two, the RVs are always every bit as bad as the LVs. Um, number three, they're immunosuppressed, so the risk of infection with, when the, with the VAD are clearly higher uh, as well. Just for reference, when I mentioned TAH, I was specifically referring to total artificial heart implantation, where the native heart is almost entirely excised and a device is put in that provides biventricular support. In terms of TAH, again, it's a theoretical possibility. Not a lot of centers do TAH. Uh, plenty of centers are unincluded, don't have uh, great results uh, just in general with TAH. Sure. Um, so it's not something we pursue. Is it a reasonable thing to consider if you're at a center that has a, a lot of... Uh, a lot of use for it, sure. Just remember, again, these patients are immunosuppressed. Right. Um, and, uh, and of course, by very definition, if you're trying to get them to transplant, you're going to be putting them through two operations. So I think far better if you can prioritize them either through an exception or, uh, again, like as a status two with a balloon pump. So 
that was that was fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we had a very comprehensive review on AL amyloidosis. Do you have any pointers, any recommendations, any plugs for our listeners? Sure. Uh, so when I uh, uh, co-founded the Stanford Amyloid Center along with the colleagues in hematology, uh, now uh, twelve years ago or so, it was amazing how this was this niche disease that nobody. Uh, knew or cared about, and certainly you couldn't go to a scientific session, uh, and uh, maybe every three years you'd find some poorly attended uh, amyloid session. Now, it, it you cannot go to a meeting without having multiple sessions, and it being this hot topic, it's been an amazing thing to see. And uh, so I'll say, first off, for anybody who's listening who is a trainee and is thinking about uh, areas to really specialize in, this is a, a great area to focus on. Um, and it's really an area where you can make a massive difference for patients. For AL uh, in particular, uh, the, the difference that you can make with therapies and proper identification is absolutely huge, both from a survival standpoint and from a quality of life standpoint. It's very gratifying to see these patients uh, who were uh, who exceedingly ill. They'd read on the Internet that they'd be dead in six months. Right. And you're seeing them years uh, and years later. We're doing fine. And, and that's, that's actually the majority of patients now. So forget what you learned in medical school about yes. it. It's a, it's a, it's a different state, uh, different uh, state for the. No, uh, absolutely. I mean, I, we just came out of the AHA talk where I, I didn't really have any seats. I was sitting in the back. So, so really full audience, really a lot of interest in the disease. Thank you so much for your time, Ron. Thanks. If you enjoyed our episode, don't forget to like, subscribe, and give us a high rating as it helps other listeners find us. You can leave your suggestion for topics, critiques, things you think we can do better. You can email us at heartsuccessteam at gmail.com. You can actually find us on our website at www.heartsuccess.info. Our website now also provides links to all the podcast providers where you can listen to this episode. You can find us on our Facebook page at Heart Success Team, or you can always reach me on Twitter at Cardio Bro.